Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. We now know the name of President Trump's nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. It's Brett Kavanaugh, currently a U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals judge in Washington. He's relatively young, he's conservative, and he has yet to be confirmed. Joining me in studio is a man who knows the court and the law. Greg McGarrion is a professor of law at Washington University, and he clerked for former Supreme Court Justice Paul Stevens. Greg, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Well, everybody's talking about this today, and I know people of, of your ilk in the, in the law world certainly are. Um, give me your just quick overview of this man as, as you see him. He is deeply conservative, and that's really significant in the case of this vacancy because he is substantially to the right of Justice Kennedy, the, the man he's replacing. Because he's the fifth vote replacing what was the swing vote, Justice Kennedy, that means that now we're going to have five strongly, solidly committed ideological conservatives on the court able to do uh, a great deal of what they want and and really remake the law potentially in a lot of areas. During his uh, his address last night following his uh, his nomination by President Trump, he called himself, as, as others have, an originalist. What is an originalist in the law? An originalist is someone who believes that in interpreting the Constitution and making constitutional law, judges should adhere to the original meaning of the Constitution. Now, that's a fraught concept, and there are different versions, different flavors of originalism. The one that's in vogue now is to try to understand how people at the time constitutional provisions were enacted uh, viewed those provisions, how what, what people, regular people, thought those provisions meant. Among the uh, those people uh, was Thomas Jefferson. And if I have my history straight, didn't he say at one time that the Constitution should be changed every 10 or 20 years or so to keep up with what was going on in society? Well, this is one of the many difficulties with originalism. Uh, it presumes that the original meaning is what we are supposed to uh, effectuate with the Constitution. And there are very good arguments that uh, the framers of constitutional provisions and the public at the time that provisions were enacted would have said, hey, we know this is supposed to be forever and we are at this moment transient people. So in the future, people should interpret the Constitution in ways that are appropriate to future times. But of course, they couldn't foresee what we're going through now or what we have gone through for a couple of hundred years. I think of the digital, digital age and technology. Uh, there's nothing in the Constitution really that, that uh, with regard to the digital world and the internet and how law should be applied there. That's right. And originalists uh, will say that they can sort of expand or, or, or that the, the original meanings that they're trying to effectuate can accommodate technological change. But again, it really is a problem for originalism because, as you say, uh, people who are in the business of, for example, creating a new republic are often visionary enough to say the future is unknown, it will bring wonders and terrors undreamed of, and we shouldn't try and we shouldn't expect anyone to nail down the meaning of this fundamental document, the Constitution, at the moment, at our moment in time. Has original Originalism uh, always been um, pretty um, pretty prominent amongst uh, Supreme Court justices, or is this something relatively new? 
Most Supreme Court justices uh, over time have been eclectic in their approach to constitutional mm-hmm. interpretation. Uh, it's sort of a whatever gets you through the night approach. Mm-hmm. They are judges. They are trying to resolve cases and they're trying to understand the meaning of the Constitution as best they can. So it's relatively rare to see a, a Supreme Court justice over time saying this is the dogma. This is the way you should interpret the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas uh, have been committed on the record, originalists, they haven't always honored that commitment in the breach, but they've been about as consistent in, in adherence to one interpretive view as you could expect anyone to be. So there's a possibility that that uh, consistency of originalism or commitment to originalism will get a lot stronger on the new Trump Supreme Court. Uh, another couple of things I'd like to clear up before we talk about some of the specifics of, uh, of uh, Mr. Kavanaugh. Um, he was um, on the what the Federalist list, I guess, that a lot of people have been talking about, which was the list of uh, potential nominees that uh, President Trump could choose from. What is the Federalist list and what is that society? So the, the Federalist Society is a uh, nationwide organization with a lot of members and a lot of chapters, uh, law schools among practitioners of conservative and libertarian lawyers and judges. And a little bit – put this in a little bit of context. After the liberal Warren court of the 1960s, conservatives were very uh, distraught about the changes that – the bad changes they thought the Supreme Court had made in society. And taking back the courts became a, a, a very strong agenda item for the right. And, and that got even stronger when Roe versus Wade prompted a kind of uh, spike in social conservatism around the issue of abortion. So the Federalist Society grew out of that uh, uh, commitment or desire to change the makeup of the federal courts. And it's it's extremely organized. You don't get anywhere as a conservative trying to make your name as a conservative in, in the American judicial or legal world uh, without being part of and having the support of the Federalist Society. So it's extremely organized and increasingly powerful, obviously. Definitely. Before we get uh, – you mentioned abortion. We'll certainly get to that. But uh, before we get too far away from the subject of originalism, let's bring in one of our listeners. Jack is calling from Valley Park, and I think he wants to address that. So go ahead, Jack. You're on the air. Uh, hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I believe that the, um, your guess is, I, I believe he's mischaracterizing originalism, that it's uh, static and can't change, it can't change at the time. Um, I believe that what we interpret as originalism is just, uh, you know, understanding the plain meaning of the text of what the people uh, thought about it at the time. And I think nowadays, it's, if you have a different opinion or want to change things, you just kind of squint at the text and twist it to mean things that uh, it was never intended to do. Um, and we believe that, uh, you know, originalism, you can definitely change the Constitution to change with the times, but you just have to amend it. Um, that would take uh, the legislature. But uh, this idea that, you know, uh, I think Clarence Thomas, uh, he, had, he had a good, uh, good uh, analogy in, um, I saw uh, on C-SPAN where he said, um, you know, the amendment that gave women the right to vote, you know, why did they do that at the time? Well, because, you know, they looked at the Constitution and they said, Oh, you know, it, it clearly says only men can vote. So they made an amendment that women can vote. Um, you know, and they were, he was contrasting that today. They would probably just, you know, look at the Constitution and just make up some reason, like, why women can vote, even though, you know, squint at it and twist it to say things. Uh, so I think if, if you have a, uh, something to change, you can just uh, 
you know, use the constitutional process to amend the Constitution. Jack, Jack, we have the point. Uh, in the interest of time, let me get Greg to respond to that. Well, talking about constitutional interpretation is, is a long conversation, and I certainly didn't do originalism full justice with the quick account of it that I gave. Uh, I think my account was consistent with what the listener is saying. It's absolutely true that originalists say the way to change the Constitution is to amend it. Uh, I would agree with the caller that there are some provisions in the Constitution that very clearly state uh, meanings that are unarguable. Uh, Limiting the vote to men and to white men in the original Constitution is certainly one example of that. The problem comes up. Uh, And the big interpretive battles come up when we get to terms in the Constitution like equal protection of the laws or due process of law that are broad, that are subject to uh, differing interpretations. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out that the charge the caller made of manipulation on the part of contemporary, I guess he meant non-originalist interpreters, uh, what's sauce for the goose is sort of sauce for the gander. The greatest originalist opinion of the Supreme Court is the Heller decision, which recognized a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms for ordinary people. That was a Justice Scalia opinion. He said, originalism is the way to go and I'm going to do originalism. And then he just basically blew off the parts of the Second Amendment, the preamble of the Second Amendment that didn't fit his uh, conclusion that he wanted to reach. So originalism is very much subject to manipulation. What about the issue of popular opinion? I mean, they poll everything these days. You've spent some time uh, in the confines of that Supreme Court building. Are justices cognizant of public opinion? And does that shade, ever shade, uh, their rulings? I think justices try very hard not to be cognizant of the public opinion of the moment. Uh, I think they they have a very strong sense that we need to make decisions based on the law and for the long term. But I think it is unarguable that over time the Supreme Court responds to the more – emphatic, settled will of the public. And abortion is one great example. The court decides Roe versus Wade. There's political tumult about Roe versus Wade. Uh, The court revisits the fundamental issue of abortion rights in 1991 and acknowledges, look, we recognize that that this is something that we need to get right within the broad boundaries of what the people of this republic will tolerate. And so they end up uh, reaffirming Roe versus Wade, but making it easier for states to impose different kinds of incremental restrictions on abortion. And that's a dramatic example, but it illustrates, I think, a general point, which is that the Supreme Court does respond to the state of the nation, not transient public opinion necessarily, but more uh, deeply ingrained uh, changes in in values that you might see in American society. Well, of course, uh, since uh, Brett Kavanaugh's name was announced last night, and actually even before, Uh, everybody was talking about the impact that this is going to have on Roe v. Wade. And one of the things I'd like to get your uh, comment on is some people, I think, think that if he's confirmed and walks in here, the justices are just going to come in and on a 5-4 vote one day wipe out Roe v. Wade. Can't work that way. Well, let me take one step back and and put this in a little bit of general historical context, if I may, and then then Mm, talk to your question about Roe. So – uh, William Rehnquist was appointed to the Supreme Court in uh, the early 1970s. Kavanaugh said that Rehnquist is his first judicial hero. Rehnquist was the first ideologically committed conservative appointed to the court in almost 50 years. Uh, and he was the only ideologically committed conservative until Justice Scalia came along in uh, the early 1980s. 
The new Supreme Court majority, if Kavanaugh is confirmed, all five of them will be to the right of Rehnquist. I think that's very important to understand. Mm-hmm. This is an unprecedented shift in power and consolidation of power. Now, the question of Roe versus Wade in particular is a very interesting one because Chief Justice Roberts, the leader of the court and the leader of the court's conservative wing, is a very smart person, very pragmatic person. Uh, and I think he, based on his personal beliefs, what I know of him, would probably be very happy to overturn Roe versus Wade. As the Chief Justice of the United States, I think he might be hesitant to do that. So you asked how could this happen? Now, there's got to be a challenge that would put the legal issue on the table. I think that will happen. I think abortion opponents will see this as the greatest opportunity that they will ever have to overturn Roe versus Wade. I think there are probably five votes on the Supreme Court that are very sympathetic to that point of view, but I don't know if the Chief Justice ultimately will pull the trigger. He might be too concerned that that dramatic move would put the court too much in the public crosshairs, and that's something that he, I think, wants to avoid. Because, as I understand it, he is very, very aware of, of, of himself and his legacy, and I guess that's what you're saying. His legacy and also the call it the institutional capital of the court. Uh, a good example of this is is the big uh, Obamacare case, the, the big challenge to mm-hmm. Obamacare, where the chief justice broke with the other conservatives on the court, wrote a solo opinion that managed to reaffirm the core of Obamacare, the individual mandate, but also Robert's opinion did a lot of very conservative things legally along the way. What he was doing pretty clearly was trying to avoid newspaper headlines that said, conservative Supreme Court overturns liberal president's core policy achievement a few months before national election. I mean, that would have been a long headline, but you get the He didn't want that to be the story. So he softened the story. And he's done that in other cases as well. So what sort of a challenge to Roe v. Wade would have to be put before the court to make it just – to have them eliminated altogether? A state would and, – and I think there's some laws on the books in some states that would, would rise to this level. A state would have to uh, attempt to enforce a law that restricted abortion beyond the boundaries of what the Supreme Court precedents permit. Uh, it might not necessarily have to be an uh, across-the-board ban, which clearly Roe versus Wade says you can't do. It could just be some uh, regulation restriction that's so extreme as a result of shutting down all the abortion clinics in the state. We see regulations like this. And then the state would, would be challenged. Uh, the state would go to court and argue uh, hey, the way that the court should resolve this case is just to overturn Roe versus Wade. That'll definitely let us do what we want to do. Mm-hmm. Now, the court could do something narrower, per- potentially, uh, depending on the particular law at stake. But the, there are a lot of states that would love to get this in front of the Supreme Court. Or, or they can take a, a bite at a time, over time, and get rid of it that way. Which is what they've been doing. Yeah. And, and in some ways, it seems to me like that might be more what Roberts and perhaps some of the others yeah. would, would want to do. You know, Let's avoid, again, avoid the headline that says Roe versus Wade overruled. Let's just eviscerate Roe versus Wade uh, without having to answer for the cardinal move of overruling it. That's Greg McGarry, and he is a law professor at Washington University. And we are obviously talking about the naming last night of the latest Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. We'll come back and continue this discussion in just a moment. If you'd like to be a part of it, give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send it as an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org. Or if you'd prefer the tweet route, go STL on air. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Welcome back. We continue our conversation with Washington University Law Professor Greg McGarry, and we're talking about the naming last night of uh, Brett Kavanaugh as President Trump's nominee to take the place of Justice Kennedy on the U.S. Supreme Court. This question might sound like it's a little out of place here, but I think uh, our local audience might want to know, can you see any specific impact of this nominee, if confirmed, again, on our immediate area. We've talked about abortion. There are some issues here. But are there others, political perhaps, that you might see? Well, I think even prior to confirmation, uh, we're going to see some interesting effects potentially on the the big Senate race that we have here in Missouri. And this is true around the country. Uh, A Supreme Court nomination is a big politically salient event. It gets people paying attention to the president and the Senate in a way, you know, from an angle that, that's, that's different than the way we ultimately think about, about politics and about government. And in particular here in Missouri, uh, Senator McCaskill uh, tries very hard in a lot of ways to be bipartisan. There's going to be pressure on her from the center right to support this nomination. There's going to be strong pressure on her from the left to oppose this nomination. Uh, you know, it's 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 a, a hazard. It could be an opportunity. It could be a way for her to to sort of lay out her identity and her priorities in a very emphatic way. But it could be a tough uh, row for her to hoe. Definitely put, be part of the campaign uh, throughout, before and, and after confirmation, if he is confirmed. I think that's right. I mean, I think uh, I think the decision for McCaskill is going to be the most fraught thing. But yeah, if she opposes the nominee. Uh, uh, Attorney General Hawley is going to be saying, look, this is a partisan Democrat, and uh, McCaskill's response is going to be this nominee was a crazy conservative, more or less. But it's, it's you know, it's a lot of, a lot is going to depend on how, the, how successfully the candidates can characterize the nominee and the decision. And of course, it all comes back to the president as well. This is his nominee. Sure. And the attorney general is already on the record as being very supportive of this nomination. Senator McCaskill says something that's kind of... Kind of uh, Bland, I would say. I look forward to thoroughly examining Judge Kavanaugh's record in the coming weeks as the Senate considers his nomination. That's all she's saying. I mean, I could have predicted that word for word. That's, you know, for her, sure. for, the, for the other red state Democratic senators who are up for reelection, that's, that's the posture right now. Okay, we're going to listen. We're going to approach this with an open mind. Obviously, I think someone like Senator McCaskill is, is, is not going to be a fan of this nomination. But She's going to say that. And frankly, you know, that's the Senate's job. I mean, whatever whatever I say or whatever anybody else says about this nominee, it's the president's nominee. The Senate holds hearings, listens, learns about who this person is and makes a decision based on the whole record. Yep. Uh, Dick Durbin, who is a senator from Illinois, says in light of the ongoing Russia investigation, Judge Kavanaugh has expressed staunch opposition to criminal investigations of sitting presidents. This is another big issue, actually, that uh, looms ahead because uh, Judge Kavanaugh is so on the record in support of presidential authority. This is a big issue. And in fairness to Judge Kavanaugh, his position is not out there. I mean, there are a lot of people, regardless of ideology, who who would say, and there are Supreme Court decisions that that go some distance towards saying uh, basically what he believes, that the president should not be troubled by 
legal proceedings against him in the course of the presidency. Now, the devil, of course, is in the details and, and the nature of the uh, the investigations that might be facing a president. We know what's going on now. But yeah, you know, if you look at the Nixon years and the Clinton years, in both of those situations, presidents sort of dogged by scandal, the Supreme Court ended up weighing in on some very important issues relating to uh, what those presidents had had done and and making some pivotal decisions that that affected the president's uh, terms in office. So it, it's a very real possibility that Trump has basically just named the judge in his own trial, and that judge is is a very friendly uh, has a very friendly position for the president. Senator Booker of New Jersey said last night that he couldn't have nominated anyone who would have his back more than this uh, this nominee. I think that's fair. Okay, what about recusal? I mean, is that an option that he would have uh, should it come to that? Well, recusal recusal only really comes into play when you're talking about some sort of personal, unusual personal connection to a case. One thing that's interesting about the Supreme Court is there's nobody above them. And so they make recusal decisions and they never even explain why or they don't recuse and they don't explain why. And there have been controversies periodically about that. But simply having written... Uh, an academic article saying in general, this is what I think about presidential power, uh, isn't ever going to be a basis for uh, a Supreme Court justice to recuse. Uh, Justice Kagan has recused herself, though, has she not, from uh, any issues that came before her when she was, what, Solicitor General? Yeah, so she was the Solicitor General, which is the the top government lawyer before the Supreme Court, and she was involved in all the litigation that the government was involved in during that time. So, right, when a case comes up before her, uh, on the Supreme Court now that came before her then, even if she was only tangentially involved, she's going to recuse. The same thing will happen uh, when and, you know, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, anybody who's ascending to the Supreme Court, sometimes a case will come up that they actually saw when they were a judge on the lower court. And in an instance like that, the, ju- the justice will always recuse. Mm. I have a statement here from the Anti-Defamation League of, uh, of the St. Louis area. Uh, It reads, at a time where hard-fought progress in LGBT rights, voting rights, and women's rights are threatened, and immigrants and vulnerable communities in our country are under attack, the role of an independent Supreme Court and one that protects the constitutional rights of all Americans is more important than ever. Okay, that's a statement I think all of us can understand. I bring it up because uh, the uh, ADL mentions a number of issues that certainly impact us here. You know, we talk about the voting rights and the LGBT rights. Um, all of these things are now uh, may have a bullseye on them. I think that's right. And and something about that statement strikes me, the, the sort of idea of an independent Supreme Court. Of course, the Supreme Court remains independent. The judicial branch is an independent branch of government. But I was talking before about the unprecedented conservatism of what will be this new court's majority. Another unprecedented thing we're seeing is absolute single-party control of the United States government. This is something that... Uh, I'm not a historian, uh, but I think you would have to go back to the early years of the republic to see anything remotely like this, where one party, uh, a strongly ideologically defined and, and homogeneous party, is in firm control of all three branches of the federal government. I mean, the conservative movement, the Republican Party, can do whatever it wants. And that's certainly going to the particular issues you asked about, voting rights, Um this is a big roiling issue. Uh, conservative uh, governments in states uh, in particular have done a lot to 
sort of attack the voting rights of groups that tend to vote Democratic and conservative courts uh, have backed them up. That was true with Justice Kennedy on the court in some important recent decisions. I think it's certainly going to be true going forward. Right. Well, as uh, many people have pointed out, elections do have consequences and we do have an election coming up. That could change that uh, balance of power. That certainly could. Let's take another call or two as time allows. Cynthia in St. Louis will join us. Cynthia, thanks for waiting. You're on the air. Hi, thank you. I um, um, would like to ask, uh, with um, the apparent courting of uh, Justice Kennedy to step down and the potential for one of his circuits to become um, a Supreme Court justice, his, con- his family connection with uh, President Trump, his son Justin's connections with Trump at Deutsche Bank as a commercial, commercial real estate banker, and then going on from Deutsche Bank to um, be involved in finance of real estate, including Kushner Properties with Jared Kushner. Um, please, uh, if you could uh, let me know why we haven't heard more about that in the last few days and why Democrats are not um, talking about uh, a lot of the issues surrounding how the bulk came about. That's a great question. There certainly has been coverage uh, in the media of of the issues that you're talking about, the connections between uh, Trump and Kennedy. Just speaking for myself, I think probably the reason that the Democrats are not hitting that issue harder is because it's a little bit of a black hole in terms of, I'm going to mix my metaphors here, in terms of gaining any traction. Uh, Supreme Court justices decide to retire for all kinds of reasons. It's kind of a black box. Even if there was some uh, very strong persuasive connection here, ultimately, unless Justice Kennedy retired under duress, you're probably not going to make much legal or even political headway turning that into a big issue. I think what the Democrats are probably more likely to do is turn to the substance of uh, issues that broadly concern people like LGBT rights, like voting rights, like abortion. Um, I, you know, you, you choose your battles, and I think that's probably the battle that, that they're choosing at this point. Interesting question here. Uh, what do you make of the sheer power the Supreme Court wields, regardless of party control? Did we put too many eggs in one basket from the get-go and how much or how this branch of the federal government was set up? There's a, a famous book by a, a constitutional scholar, uh, Alexander Bickel, called The Least Dangerous Branch. And the idea is that really if you look at how the government is set up, the Supreme Court isn't all that powerful in the broad scheme of things. It can only decide cases that come before it. It relies on the executive branch for enforcement uh, of its decisions. That said, there are certainly moments where the Supreme Court exercises extraordinary power. I think the harmony of ideology among the court and the other two branches of government is going to provide a very interesting and potentially uh, scary test of how we assess the court's power. What I mean is that in circumstances where the court is not aligned politically with everybody else in the government, we can sort of rely on the storied system of checks and balances to keep all of the branches sort of working within their lanes. Uh, but a court that is uh, fully harmonious with the elected branches of government, it's not so much a concern that the court will have more power than the other branches. It's that the, concert, the court will form part of a phalanx of power uh, of the Republican Party that, that can accomplish uh, a great many things. Are there many examples of uh, 
justices who have been appointed and uh, thought to be of one political stripe where they've evolved. I think of Earl Warren. I think it was a surprise to a lot of people when he was uh, a, a champion of the Brown versus Board of Education. He was thought to be a conservative. There are definitely instances of that, very prominent ones. Earl Warren and also William Brennan, uh, the sort of architect of the Warren Court's liberalism. They were both Eisenhower appointees. Nixon appointed Harry Blackman, who became much more liberal. Ford appointed my old boss, uh, revered mentor John Paul Stevens, who uh, was seen as a moderate Republican by the time he retired, was the leader of the court's liberal wing. But the last time that happened, and the only time that's happened since Stevens, we're talking 1975 for the Stevens appointment, David Souter, appointed by the first President Bush, uh, famously uh, uh, the chief of staff, Johnson, who said, this guy is a home run for conservatives. And Souter ended up basically being a part of the court's liberal wing. That isn't going to happen again anytime soon. The stakes are too high. The politics are too stratified. Presidents want to know what they're getting, and they have easy ways of knowing what they're getting. The Federal societies you talked about before – being the big one for conservatives. Mm-hmm. Well, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of talk about uh, what lies ahead for um, uh, uh, Judge Kavanaugh. Um, do you think we're just going to be witnessing political theater for the next months? I mean, it, it, can't we say that this is a foregone conclusion, this guy's going to be confirmed? We can almost say it's a foregone conclusion, uh, but there are some variables that make it a little bit interesting. Uh, Senators uh, Collins and Murkowski, uh, are strongly supportive of Roe versus Wade, and they have said that we're not going to vote for somebody who would overturn Roe versus Wade. Now there are ways to sort of navigate that those straits, but they're not sure things. On the other hand, we've got Democrats, uh, Mansion of West Virginia in particular, who aren't sure things. The other thing that can always happen, one thing with Kavanaugh, this is a guy who's been around for a while; he's a known quantity, but there can be. Uh, sort of surprises in the background of a nominee that come to the fore and and create problems. So the Senate being as close as it is, the stakes being as high as they are, it's always political theater. It's a very likely outcome that he's going to get confirmed. But I don't don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I I think there are enough variables in play that, that, that people are going to be digging in and and fighting like it means something. And we can rest assured that of the 300 or so opinions that he's written, they are being mined quite conscientiously now by both sides. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, Greg McGarrion, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, It's always fascinating to talk to you about these things, and you've done a great job as always. Thank you. Thank you so much, Don. That's Greg McGarrion of Washington University. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. 